Thought Leadership from PwC. Today we're back with our Talking ESG series, this time revisiting what's been one of the biggest reporting topics of the year, the SEC's Climate Disclosure Proposal. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. Some companies have already disclosed greenhouse gases um, through their sustainability people, but I think that's a process that was uh, generally divorced from the financial reporting group. So I think them getting engaged and working with them for the first time, I think they're learning a lot and they just have a lot of questions about exactly what the SEC is trying to get out here. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. It's been almost nine months since the SEC released its climate disclosure proposal. And while we still don't have a final rule, and it won't be applicable at the beginning of 2023, as we initially thought it may, many companies have already been busy getting into the details of what implementing the proposed rule would look like. And as many are finding out, digging into the proposal and trying to apply it to your specific fact pattern often creates many, many questions. Podcast favorite Val Weeman is back in the guest seat today to talk about those questions. What we found is there are definitely some recurring themes. So for the benefit of our listeners who may be working through their own pre-implementation processes, or perhaps for those of you who are still standing by the sidelines, we wanted to pull out some of the questions that come up most frequently and talk through what the proposal actually has to say. With that, let's dive into the conversation with Val. So Val, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on. And I'm definitely looking forward to learning what you think are the most recurring questions that you're getting, because I may have to throw in a few surprises for you based on the conversations I've been having. So welcome back. I was going to say most of the questions I'm getting, you and I have discussed before I ever you know, gave an answer. So it's uh, on equal sides on this one. All right. Well, we'll see. You can maybe throw in a question or two for me if you have one. So let's go sort of in order of the proposal. And with that, what I mean is I think normally when we talk about it, we start with the Regulation SK disclosure. So let's start there. And in particular, as a reminder for our listeners, one of the required disclosures relates to strategy, business model, and outlook. And specifically in there, there is a proposed required disclosure by location. And with respect to the disclosure of the location and the nature of the properties, processes, or operations subject to physical risk, the proposal says that that needs to be at the zip code level of granularity. And then for certain types of properties, you actually have to provide even more detail. Nonetheless, even though it is specifically in the proposal, I know we get lots of questions. What level of granularity do I need to do these disclosures? So ask the easy question first. What level of granularity? But I do have a slightly more difficult follow-up question. Looking forward to that one. Um, so I think part of the problem here is that the proposal uses the word location throughout, but you actually have to go to the definitions where it says that their use of the word location means zip code. So anywhere that it says that you need to provide location information, they actually mean the zip code or the jurisdiction um, in locations that don't use zip codes. So obviously that's more of a, a U.S. feature versus internationally. So you are looking at sort of a, a jurisdictional uh, area. Every time they use the word location, they actually do mean the word zip code uh, at that level. So the location of the assets and the operations that are exposed to that risk. 
All right. And then my follow-up question, and you sort of anticipated it, but not completely. What if I have operations and a jurisdiction that does not have zip codes? Do we have any advice? Um, so they talk about the uh, similar subnational postal zone. So I think that's going to vary based on the jurisdiction that you're in. But I think in general, if you think about addressing things to international locations, that uh, there is sort of that regional regional area that you could identify um, that gets to that similar level of granularity. Okay. And then maybe final point that I would make here is that this is one of the areas uh, of the proposal where PwC commented that we thought perhaps they could use a different level of granularity. And I know many other commenters did as well. So we'll be interesting to see what happens in the final proposal. But I do think uh, starting to at least think about what this may look like for you makes sense now, because even if they do change the level, I you know, I, I don't think we would necessarily anticipate that they're going to get rid of this disclosure entirely. All right. So let's move on then. And the next area would be uh, the requirement to disclose some various items related to governance and oversight. And specifically, the proposed rules would require the registrant to identify any board members or board committees responsible for the oversight of climate related risks. And then it would also require a disclosure of whether any member of the board of directors has expertise in climate-related risks. Um, and then you have to describe the nature of the expertise. So I think the question that I've been hearing, at least Val, is whether or not that means the actual person, like do you have to give their name or could it be something more generic than that? So Heather, I think there are two parts to that question. Um, the first is with regard to who's responsible for oversight. So if it is a committee, then you would identify the name of the committee. And if it's an individual, then you would identify the name of the individual. So I do think you would have to give the name. Um, the committee, you would not need to provide additional disclosure about the members of that committee, but that information is available elsewhere in the proxy. So then Val, that's helpful. And definitely, I think that goes to the first requirement, which is the identity of any board members or board committee responsible for oversight. Now, the second actual requirement is whether any member of the board of directors has expertise in climate-related risks with disclosure in such detail as necessary to fully describe the nature of the expertise. So definitely doesn't mention the name of the board member there, but how would you sort of think about that? Um, I think that, again, I agree with you. It doesn't say you need to have the name of the board member, but because it's the, uh, you need to identify whether they have the expertise and then the nature of the expertise. And then knowing that the qualifications of your board members is available, their work history, their current roles and responsibilities um, is available elsewhere in the proxy. I think you really get to the same place. So I would suggest that, um, you know, as we read the rules that you would identify the identity of the person who has that expertise. All right. That's helpful. And then one more follow-up question on that is the other question that I get probably even more so than about the name, because I think people generally presume they'll be including the name. I know exactly where you're going uh, with this one. Is, <laughs> is what constitutes expertise. So how do you define expertise? That interestingly is not talked about in a lot of detail in the proposal. I mean, clearly it's not in the rules, but also even in the four part of the proposal. I agree. Um, they don't actually get into what would qualify as expertise. Um, so I think there's a lot of judgment that you can apply there. 
um, which is different, actually, if you think about the similar disclosures for audit committee uh, financial experts, or if you look at the proposal for a cyber, where they give more of a framework to um, sort of guide you toward what they mean. Here, it's pretty wide open, so it's subject to interpretation. But um, I would look at things like their academic and professional experience, maybe their credentials, um, you know, their their background. So I think that uh, it's a little bit of you know it when you see it. So if you have someone who's going to raise their hand or a board who's going to identify someone with expertise, I think, um, you know, you've come to that conclusion based on consideration of X. And I think you would just need to disclose what X is. Um, but there's a lot of uh, judgment required there and not a lot of specificity within the proposal. All right. That's helpful. Thank you. So then, Val, let's move on to one more related in this area. This is really in the area of risk management and oversight of risk management, but specifically in item 1503, it does require for a registrant that has adopted a transition plan as part of its risk management strategy to describe the plan, including metrics and targets used to identify and manage any fiscal and transition risks. And then there's various other required disclosures. So the question I've been getting on in this area is, what if climate risks aren't material? Do you still need to make this disclosure because the document does discuss the fact that they are viewing materiality through the lens that they historically have used for um, filings. And typically you wouldn't necessarily disclose something if it's not material. So this is another one where I think you can get a little bit cute or caught up in the actual language that they're using. So I agree that the requirement is to disclose transition plans and they don't actually put a qualifier um, on that relative to that it only has to be the material ones. But because you have to disclose a plan, um, sort of the question is, why would the company bother having a transition plan related to a risk that wasn't material? So almost by nature of having a transition plan, it kind of seems that either qualitatively or quantitatively, someone has made a determination that that's a material risk. So while technically you would need to disclose transition plans for things that were not material, um, it almost presupposes that if you have a transition plan, it's probably material in some way to the company. And so you would need to include that in your disclosure. All right. That's helpful. And definitely, I think that whole area, there's probably more to talk about. So maybe that'll be part two podcast, but let's move on then to greenhouse gas reporting. And I definitely know that this is where I have been probably getting the most questions. And just as again, a reminder to our listeners, the proposal would require disclosure of scope one and scope two GHG emissions for all uh, companies subject to the rule. So almost all SEC registrants. And then it would also require disclosure of scope three GHG emissions if you have a target or goal or if they're material to you, unless you're a smaller reporting company, in which case you are not subject to that part of the rule. So basically all registrants and basically most people will be required to disclose scope one, scope two, and scope three. So as you are getting questions there, uh, are you getting, what types of questions are you getting? It's a lot of like, is this really what the rule says? A lot of interpretation or something in the middle? Yeah, I think that this is the area that most of the people we deal with, if you think about um, sort of our main questions coming from financial reporting and more of the sort of the accounting and the finance side is where people are not as familiar with these requirements. So they may be familiar with risks and disclosures and controls, but when you get to greenhouse gas, the questions we're getting are really trying to clarify what's in the language and what's required or is proposed to be required, obviously. 
Um, so the nature is more about what if I don't have the information and how do I make estimates and how do I consider materiality? So it's about applying sort of concepts that they're familiar with to an area that they're not familiar with. So it does have a slightly different flavor than some of the other questions we're getting about um, the disclosures or how transparent they need to be here. I just think there's a lot of confusion about how to apply the rules and some new touch points between, uh, you know, some companies have already disclosed greenhouse gases um, through their sustainability people, but I think that's a process that was uh, generally divorced from the financial reporting group. So I think them getting engaged and working with them for the first time, I think they're learning a lot and they just have a lot of questions about exactly what the SEC is trying to get out here. All right. So then let's get into some of these questions. And one of them actually, I think, goes to the difference between what people may have been reporting previously and then what is proposed under the SEC rules. And again, just as a quick education here, that one of the things in the SEC rules has probably gotten the most attention is that it would require reporting of GHG emissions in accordance with the same organizational boundary that is being used for the financial statements. And we've said this several times on past podcasts and webcasts, organizational boundary is basically a fancy term for the entities that are included in the reporting. So historically, the GHG protocol has differences, uh, potential differences from your consolidated group. SEC reporting would say, nope, follow the consolidated group. And then there's some subtleties of when you include all versus your share. So if you have previously reported equity method, or excuse me, if you have previously excluded your equity method investees from your GHG reporting, now you're starting to prepare to report under the SEC rules. How do you think about those equity investees now? Can you keep doing the same thing? So I agree that we're getting a lot of questions here, and that's different from how companies may have previously reported their emissions. So for equity method investments, um, they actually word it in the rule kind of backwards. So they said that you can not report the emissions for entities that are not consolidated, proportionally consolidated, or accounted for under the equity method investment. So if you flip out all of the double negatives, it means that you do need to pick up your proportionate share of emissions from equity method investees. So um, if you have a 40% ownership and you're accounting for it under the equity method, then you would pick up 40% of those emissions. Now under the greenhouse gas protocol, those emissions would be reported as scope three. But based on these organizational boundaries under the SEC proposed rule, you would include those in their scope one, scope two, scope three. So you would pick up all of their emissions in the relevant categories of the registrant. Part of it actually depends on how it's been reported under the greenhouse gas protocol. Uh, you can either use a control model or the operational model. And I think that um, if you've elected the operational model, you will see a difference between how that's reported under the SEC rules. Yeah. So I think probably the key thing uh, here is really for companies to understand that GHG protocol did permit other types of reporting. SEC has been very specific about using the same organizational boundaries of the financial statements. But what I always find funny about this question, and I found it funny even when I was asking you, Val, is 
I describe the roles, which basically say, or do say, you have to include your equity method investees. And then I said, but do you have to include your equity method investees? And I always laugh when I get the question, because that's exactly what happens. People describe the roles and then they say, but do I really? And so I think the short answer here is yes, you really do. Uh, I think the other point here is that this is going to be a place for companies to really understand what they've been reporting and to make sure that they're prepared in the, in I'll call it the new world. I mentioned in my question, there's some other subtleties here in terms of how much you're picking up. I think the other one we, we get questions on and where people get tripped up is with uh, consolidated subsidiaries that are less than wholly owned. So if you have a less than wholly owned consolidated subsidiary for financial reporting you then would be, I'll call it backing out a portion of their income or loss or, or whatnot in NCI. So your non-controlling interest. Do you have the concept of NCI when it comes to greenhouse gas reporting? I like how you give me that leading question because clearly you know that there is not. Um, so there is no allowance for non-controlling interests. So if you consolidate uh, an entity, you need to report 100% of those emissions. And that applies if you have 90% uh, ownership, you would pick up 100%. But also, if you think about the variable interest entity model, that may have you consolidating entities for which you have very small ownership, but you have, uh, you're have you the primary beneficiary. So you could have 10% ownership of a VIE. If you're consolidating it, you would still pick up 100% of the emissions and not have the ability to, to back out, to use your words, the non-controlling interest portion. All right. So this is definitely something that I think there are a lot of questions when people commented that people, a lot of companies did not love this because they felt like it was presenting emissions that weren't fully their own. The philosophical question here, we will not get further into, but I think it is an important point to pay attention to. Other point I would make here before we go on to specific questions is that, you know, many of the companies we're talking to are dealing with all three proposals, or they're at least thinking about all three proposals. So this proposal, the proposal for the reporting in the EU, which is the corporate sustainability reporting directive, and as well as proposals from the International Sustainability Standards Board. And I would point out here that there are differences among all three of those as well, and then more differences from the GHG protocol. So if you are focused on this, I definitely would make sure you're kind of looking at all aspects of it because you may have some different ways that you need to report. Okay, so some more questions in this area, one of which is, uh, I think, one people would like to see some relief, but, you know, looking at the rules now, perhaps there isn't any. So that is whether or not a registrant would need to include the emissions from a recently acquired entity or subsidiary. So let's say you acquired a company in December. How do you think about emissions? I feel like this is another one where I start my answer with, unfortunately, um, because that is the answer. Uh, so right now, the rule does not have, um, as proposed, any provisions for a grace period. If you think about uh, newly acquired entities and the application of Sarbanes-Oxley, I think that um, some companies are used to having a little bit of time to get used to a recently acquired entity. But uh, as it's currently proposed, there actually is no grace period. So 
um, we do think that you would need to include the emissions from recently acquired entities for the period of ownership. So I think that's also another difference relative to the greenhouse gas protocol, which would have you go back and retrospectively include all of the emissions from an acquired entity. Here, um, we think following that model of uh, consistency with the financial statements that you would pick up the emissions from the point of acquisition to the end of the year, even if that happens to be December. Right. And I think the corollary then, Val, is that you also, if you have a disposition, you would stop reporting their emissions from the data disposition, which again, maybe it's my financial reporting bias, just seems logical to me. Uh, but the greenhouse gas protocol actually would you have you go back in time and remove those emissions from all of your reporting. And, you know, if you're listening and thinking, yeah, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. I think where this does get very complicated very quickly is that the rule also requires disclosure of intensity metrics. And when you think of an intensity metric, that's really your emissions divided by some financial statement measure. And one of the required ones would be revenue. And so if you think uh, about reporting an intensity metric, I think in the SEC's case, it's, it's very helpful that your revenue and your GHG are kind of all presented on the same basis whereas they may not be if you follow, for example, uh, what's required in the GHG protocol. So it's a complicated topic. We don't have to give deep get deeper into it, but there definitely is logic to what the SEC is, is proposing here. I also think maybe one other point on that, Heather, is the there is a provision in the proposal that talks about how to deal if you have gaps in your data. Now, I'll be honest, we're not entirely sure how that applies, but um, or sort of what the intent is there. But it talks about that if you have gaps in your data, that the registrant has to disclose how those gaps impacted their estimates and how they sort of filled those gaps. What was the means by which they did that? So it could be if you have a really late stage acquisition that uh, you would make a an estimate that may have very little basis, um, in fact, depending on how what period of time you have that acquisition. Um, but I think you would need to disclose that you made your best estimate um, based on the information that you had available, even if you have limited information that is available. All right. Although I would like to clarify for the record that we are, Val and I are definitely not proponents of making estimates that have little basis in fact. I, think <laughs> I, I saw you roll your eyes when some... we made that uh, that particular statement there. <laughs> it needs to have at least some basis in fact, but I think the overall point. All I, information I available. I, correct. Exactly. And I actually do want to rewind to the point you made about the fact that there's really no kind of buy for recently acquired subsidiaries, because that is another place, at least in our letter, that we were proponents that the SEC should give um, similar, I'll call it leeway, as uh, they have for Sarbanes-Oxley. So who knows what they'll do with that. But at least we were trying to uh, recognize that that could be an issue there. Um all right. So Val, you mentioned SCO3, and this is definitely, I think, one of the places where we get the most questions. And in particular, something, there's a subtlety with SCO3, which is, if you dig into this, and we've talked about this on past podcasts, there are 15 categories of SCO3 emissions, and they range all the way from emissions from purchased goods to financed emissions, to tra employee travel, and, you know, sort of everything in between. One of the questions we get, though, is that the SEC rule specifically says that if you have a scope three goal, you have to disclose scope three for all categories of missions. And so just trying to understand how that really works. So do they really mean all categories or only the one where I have a target or goal? So you really do. 
Um, and I know that that is disappointing to a lot of people. But um, what the rule says is that if you're required to disclose scope three, you have to identify the categories of activities that have been included in the calculation of scope three emissions. So uh, even if your target was only, you know, for example, some companies may be targeting just a reduction in business travel. So that's um, category six in scope three. So even if that's where your target is, the rule would require you to disclose all 15 categories, um, even though that was the only one that has your target. And then in addition to disclose any of those categories that are significant. So um, unfortunately, uh, even if you have a more limited target, you would be scoped into the full disclosure of all of the scope three emissions. All right. Val, I know there's more questions on GHG, but that's probably enough for now. I, the, again, it feels like a whole separate podcast. Let's move on to the financial statements then. And this is probably where I get it. in a way the most questions, but also probably just the most tirades of the fact that people don't really agree or like uh, what's proposed, which is all around this bright line, 1% threshold for financial statement disclosure. And in fact, as we've talked about on prior podcasts, this is the number one area of comment, at least by companies and even investors said that they didn't agree with this 1% threshold. So let's just talk about a few of the calculation questions and specifically, can positive and negative impacts on FSLIs be netted when evaluating whether it exceeds 1%? So perfect example would be you have a hurricane, your building is destroyed and your insurance covers all but a small deductible. Is that something you would need to disclose because there's no financial statement impact or very minimal? So they were very clear that you may not net off your positive and negative impacts. So what you're going to look at for determining the threshold and agreed that the proposal talks to the 1%, but regardless of what the threshold is, you would need to look at the positive and negative on an absolute value basis. So you would add them together in terms of determining whether you trigger the disclosure. Now, that said, you would need to report them separately. So you would report them, uh, the positives, separate from the negatives from a footnote disclosure standpoint. But in calculating whether you're required to have it, you would actually look at adding them together on an absolute value basis. All right. So then Val, the number two question that I've been getting about the uh, financial statement disclosures really comes around to the definitions. And there's a whole like sort of variety of flavors to these questions, because I think in general, there's different definitions used in SK and SX. And so people have confusion about that. But probably the bigger question is whether or not you are required to consider weather events, uh, severe weather events and other natural conditions to be more specific above a baseline. So let's say you're in California, there's always some drought, but then this year's drought is worse, or there's always some hurricanes, but then this year there's more hurricanes. How are you advising companies to think about that? Because I'll just give a spoiler here. The SEC guidance is silent. Correct. So I think that the way we look at it is there's nothing in the proposal or um, in the rule language itself that would imply that you can apply a baseline. So when it says to disclose the events of severe weather and other natural conditions that exceed the threshold, they don't then follow up with that exceed a baseline threshold. It's just that 1% trigger that would require disclosure. So we don't think that it implies a baseline. 
Um, but then the follow-up question to that is, well, what is severe weather? So what sort of constitutes that? Is it a, you know, does it have to be a Category 2 hurricane? Is it a Category 1 hurricane? So um, we've heard a lot of different interpretations of how to do that. Some companies are looking at, um, at least on sort of the, the outside edge, some sort of a FEMA designation or a state-designated emergency that would give you some sort of an objective framework. So I think companies are trying to develop some sort of a framework to identify what severe weather means. Um, but I think that's completely different than looking at sort of a benchmark sort of baseline. All right. So Val, let's wrap up with one final question here. And this one relates to also relates to the financial statement disclosures, but specific to transition. And the question that I've been getting here is how do you think about something in terms of whether it's transition, if it's something that maybe there's other causes. So you're moving your headquarters, but you might've moved them anyway, but they were in a flood zone and now they're not. Or let's say I'm closing a power plant and sooner than I would have otherwise, because now there's government incentives to do that from the IRA. Is one of those clearly a transition activity? The other one's not, or neither? Is it hard to say? How are you thinking about that? So I'm curious to see if you agree with me on this one, but um, I look at it as requiring an element of intent. So there are some things that you may do just because um, they had to get done. So your HVAC system goes out and you need to buy a new one, and it happens to be more efficient or eco-friendly than the one that you had. To me, that's not necessarily something that you would need to include as a cost in looking at your threshold for footnote disclosures. But if you have now had an objective where you're going to replace throughout your portfolio of rental locations, you're going to replace all of the HVAC systems specifically in order to reduce emissions, then I think that sort of cost would be considered. So I do think there has to be a plan or an intent uh, in order to be focused on that um, emission or that that better climate, something that's friendlier for the climate, as opposed to something that sort of incidentally happens. But even in the case of intent, I think there couldn't be other elements there. So I do think companies trying to figure out how they're going to disclose that, how they're going to consider that, you know, it may not be all transition. And I think that's a struggle for companies as they think about how to apply these rules. So I agree with that, but I would also suggest that there needs to be a level of consistency in how they're approaching it and what they're considering in scope for the calculation or not. Yes, 100% agree with that. So Val, as always, such a pleasure to talk to you. I think for the benefit of our listeners, this is just a collection of questions. And, you know, our points of view today, which I think continue to evolve as we learn more about the new rule, as well as this is a proposed rule, not the final. So that also could make further changes. So definitely a lot for us to think about here and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Heather. I'm sure I'll be back. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. 
PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.